are continuing in our series titled Let Us Love. So if you haven't, if you weren't here last week, it's a new series we started last Sunday. Uh, and for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about, about loving uh, and why we ought to love and how we ought to love. And today I get to talk to you guys about loving your enemy, right? Love your enemy from Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. I have a question for you guys. Um, <clears throat> oh, just a second, I... Pulled out the wrong sermon notes. Yes, this is the correct one. All right, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I asked the same question to our first service crowd, and I was kind of disappointed in uh, uh, how connected we are there. So I'm hoping for a much better response here. And here's the question: How many of you guys are on Twitter? Hmm. Literally, I'm seeing two hands. So it's actually, uh, first service was better than you guys in terms of being on Twitter. But uh, I guess, well, if you don't know what Twitter is, it's another social media platform. It's really interesting in the sense that you have a limited number of characters you can use, but you get to just throw stuff out into the universe. It could be thoughts on your life, politics, religion, it could be about anything at all. And it, you know how like Facebook, people usually put up like photos of things you're doing? Twitter is more like your thoughts, you know, more like what's, or news, or what's happening, or what's going on. It's really interesting because um, it's searchable by any topic. That's, that's the whole hashtag. So if you want to see what people in the world are talking about regarding Trump, you, you know, hashtag Trump, and every single tweet that someone's made in this universe about Trump will come up for you. It's, it's crazy. It's fascinating at times. But it's almost, it's faster than searching CNN for news. Breaking news. Like if there's an earthquake, if you go on to Twitter, you do hashtag your Belinda earthquake, it everyone will talk about it. Like, you know, earthquake in my area at 3.30 p.m. It shook a little. Everyone's trying to be a news reporter, right? Here's a, a fascinating thing I want to ask you guys. Can you guess the five biggest Twitter accounts in terms of how many followers they have, right? So the followers are important because if you have zero followers, you could tweet all you want, no one's gonna hear you, right? Unless you try to really keep tweeting on just the trending topics. But anyways, top five Twitter accounts in terms of followers, right? Try to figure this out. Number five, right? I messed up her name uh, first service. I probably will mess it up again. Uh, Re Rihanna. You know, it's weird, there's a silent H, right? <laughs> Come on, is it Hannah, Hannah, Rihanna? I said Rihanna, I think, and people started laughing. Uh, my daughter is so embarrassed right now. Like, uh, all right, she's number five. 60, almost 66 million followers for her. Number four, Barack Obama. Number four, 77 and a half million followers. Number three, Taylor Swift, coming in at almost 81 million followers. I was like, whoa, 81 million people care about her thoughts? Number two, kind of got me a little bit depressed, Justin Bieber, 88,229,763 followers as of last night. Number one, any guesses who's number one? 
You know, that's funny. First service gets Kim Kardashian too. It's not Kim Kardashian. Although I think she's in the top 15 or something. Uh, number one is Katy Perry. <laughs> not, almost 93 million followers. I, I'm convinced uh, teenagers are the only ones using Twitter. Uh, four of the five top Twitter accounts in terms of followers are musicians. Isn't that interesting? Recording artists. We are fascinated today with celebrities, aren't we? We want to hear their thoughts on food. We want to see their Instagram pictures. We want to hear their jokes. We want to hear their deep personal statements on life, their statements on politics, what's going on in America today. We want insight into who they are, and Twitter has provided us an opportunity to look into their minds and into their hearts, and so we follow people we think are famous, people we enjoy seeing on TV or on the big screen, or people we listen to uh, in terms of music. Well, today, I think it's interesting that we have such, such a thing out there, something I wouldn't have fathomed when I was a kid, that there would be a, a thing called Twitter and tweets. Uh, but if Twitter was around in the time of Matthew chapter 5, right? if Twitter was around then, there is no doubt that Jesus would be the number one account. He would have the most amount of followers. I know you think it's kind of interesting to say that, but if you look at Matthew chapter 4, and Veronica, don't worry, it's not in there. I, I kind of purposely, I was like, every time we put verses up, I feel like everyone's just looking at the top of my head. Uh, so I only put in a few verses today, all right? So relax, yeah, you get to chill, just the main verses. Um, in, at the end of Matthew chapter four, all right, Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus. He's going throughout all of Galilee. Okay, I want you to picture this. It's a little hard. We don't know where Galilee, uh, you know, what it necessarily looks like. All right, if you go from the northern kind of part of Galilee and you were to drive a straight shot down, if there was some kind of straight highway through, from the north to the south would only be 80 miles. If you would start at the, the Mediterranean Sea on the west and you drive straight east, and if there was a way to somehow just cut through everything, it would only be 50 miles to the eastern border. So we're not talking about a huge area. But then again, they didn't have cars back then, right? It's different. You see Jesus going throughout this region of Galilee, and he's teaching in their synagogues, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, He's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Now Syria is the region to the north of Galilee, so it's not even just in his area, and it's not even just the area where mostly Jewish people live. Syria was mostly made up of Gentiles, but there was a decent Jewish population there. So even in the northern area, there's the news and the fame of Jesus is spreading. And you know what they're doing? Because of what his ministry involved back then, they're bringing to him all the sick. They're bringing to him those who are afflicted with various diseases and pains. They're bringing to him those who are oppressed by demons, those who were having seizures and paralytics, and you know what he did? He healed them. So great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem. So even his fame spread into the big cities and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is talking about the regions to the north of the Jordan River to the east of the Jordan River. Basically, Matthew is saying this influence and sphere of Jesus' ministry is spreading, it's growing. He's reaching places that other people hadn't been able to reach. He is the man right now. He showed up on the scene and he's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing people. Now here's what I want you to think about. If a man at that time shows up 
And he is doing all the things that he's doing, right? He's the, the new guy, everyone wants to see him. I, I mean, it's amazing to consider that in that era of no smartphones, no internet, no telephones, the only way word would spread is by word of mouth. You know, people had to physically actually be in the same room to talk about it. Hey, did you hear about this new guy, Jesus? Man, he, he's not only got some great teachings, but he is actually healing people. People who had seizures, they're, they're fine. People who had these sicknesses, he, he heals them. It's amazing. You have to see him. It doesn't matter how far you have to go. You've got to travel, and you have to see him. Now, who is the, the one group of people who would be concerned about this? The religious establishment. The status quo, right? So the religious leaders of the time, where Matthew describes them as the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who had already been used to years of people coming to them. They are the experts of the law. They are the ones who take the Old Testament, well, we call it the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament back then. They just called it the law and the prophets. They just called it the word of God or scriptures or what have you. But what did they do with their lives? They studied it. They learned it. They memorized it. They interpreted it. They became the authority on the law, and because they became the authority on the law of God and on the word of God, they were, by, in effect, the religious leaders of the time. They had somehow turned the, the, the law and the prophets into 613 commandments that you had to follow. And no one could do that in terms of, I don't know, I, you know, people have trouble memorizing the Ten Commandments, right? Imagine if you had to figure out 613 commandments. You need the scribes and the Pharisees. You need them to be your experts. You need them to say, all right, hey, so what is, uh, can you remind me again, what does the Law and the Prophets say about this? But you know, you can imagine they're used to years of this. They're the ones in charge. Now there's this new guy and he is gathering crowds, great crowds. And it's not just people from one small little area. You know, Galilee, uh, Josephus, the historian at that time, he estimates that there were 204 cities and towns, with the smallest being about 15,000 inhabitants. So, you know, do the math. At the minimum, 15,000 times 204. I, 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 I'm not going to do it. You do it. Millions, right? And he's drawing great crowds from that group. And people are coming from outside the area. People are coming from Jerusalem. People are coming from Decapolis. It's crazy. If you're the religious establishment, you're wondering, is Jesus going to be on our side? Is he going to say something that's going to destroy us? Is he going to be somebody who's anti-establishment or is he pro-establishment? So you get to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first recording that Matthew puts in his gospel about you know, Jesus' discourse. Now he's going to finally record for us where Jesus stands on the issues. It's like if you're following the, the politics today. And if you live in America and you don't know there's an election, you need to, to turn on the news once in a while. But there's an election, right? But then, you know, everyone wants to know, well, where do, you, what are the, where, where do these uh, uh, nominees actually stand? What's their stance on immigration? What's their stance on taxes? 
What's their stance on foreign policy, right? These are things we want to know. What do, they, what, what do they actually think about these things? What's their plan? Well, now, finally, we get to Matthew 5, and Jesus is going to sit down, and he's going to have what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to describe for the people then and for us today his policies, all right, his kingdom. And if you get to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, I think he says something that would have been of particular interest to the religious establishment. In verse 17, he says this, you know what? Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Oh, that's good news for the religious establishment. We made our whole lives about the law. Okay, you're not here to say that the law is not real. You're not here to change it. You're not here to get rid of it. You're for the law and the prophets. Great, so are we, but we're the experts on the law. Jesus says, though, something very important. He says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. That is a profound statement. He's saying, all right, you know everything that the law and the prophets talk about? They're talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of those things. The Messiah? Me. The true king? Me. I'm the fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. The law and the prophets, the expectations, the hopes, me. I'm the fulfillment. Right? Now, if you're the establishment, this probably already, sirens, red alert, red alert, this guy's crazy. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then you skip a few verses and you get to verse 20, and if you weren't upset at him then, now you're really, whoa, what is he saying? He says this, look, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this was shocking. What he said was like, bam, shocking. This would have definitely trended straight to the top. He is saying something super, super shocking. It's like you telling me, Sam, you need to go out on a basketball court and dunk the basketball better than LeBron James. Sam, I'm gonna throw you into a pool. I want you to swim a 100 meter butterfly faster than Michael Phelps' world record. If you're a Roman Catholic, I want you to be holier than the Pope. These were the, these were the experts of the law. These were the ones who made their entire life about learning it, about teaching it, about interpreting it. How can we have more righteousness than people who had dedicated their entire heart, soul, and mind to that kind of life? I think what Jesus says immediately after he says this in verse 20, I think it'll make it clear. Now, I know I'm spending a little bit of time in setting the table for, like, when is he going to start talking about love your enemies? It'll make sense really soon right now, but you need to pay attention right now or else everything I've done has just been wasted. <laughs> okay. This, I'm not gonna throw up to you, just listen. Okay, just listen to this. He says, all right, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he says right after. You have heard, and he's gonna say six times this kind of statement. You have heard that it was said or it was said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You go down to the next statement he makes in verse 27 and 28. He says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you know what? This is what the scribes and the Pharisees have done. They've taken the law and the prophets and they've boiled it down to a series of external rules and behaviors and 613 things that you have to do if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But you know what? That's what they're telling you. But I say to you, right? You have heard it. You can't commit murder. That's breaking the rules. That's breaking the laws of God. But I say to you, even if you're angry in your heart at your brother, you've sinned. You have heard that you can't commit adultery, right? You can't look at your neighbor's wife and say, whoa, better than my wife. That's wrong. Jesus says, look, The minute you think it in your heart, you've broken that commandment. You see, what Jesus is saying is this surpassing righteousness that he's talking about is is, he's saying, look, God doesn't want a bunch of guys who are committed to mindlessly and heartlessly following the rules. What God cares about is what exists on the inside. It's an internal righteousness. And I wonder if some of us have boiled Christianity down or religion down to the same thing, figuring out what are the external rules, what are the external behaviors I must follow, when am I supposed to come to church, how much am I supposed to tithe, how much of the Bible do I read, how much Bible study do I need in my life, how much time should I spend in prayer, how often should I go on missions, how much should I donate to someone going on missions, should I be a goer, should I be a sender, what are the rules laid out, tell me I can play by the rules. That's that external righteousness, I think, that Jesus was referring to. How many of you guys have enjoyed the game of Monopoly? I hope more than two people this time. Yeah, five. (laughs) You know, Hasbro or whoever that company would be in ruins if we were all like this. Monopoly is a pretty popular game. It's sold quite a few. Uh, games over the years. Uh, you know, Monopoly is kind of fun, right? But, <clears throat> you know, my daughter's sitting in here today, but it, it, there was a time, you know, she's, she's an only child, and she's grown up, and, you know, at times, you know, she's bored, so what does she want to do? She wants to play board games. She wants to play board games with me, which is fine. Uh, you know, I could be tired at times, I'll try to play board games, but the last game I wanted to play one-on-one was Monopoly. Monopoly one-on-one is a terrible, terrible game. It, it's, I think, designed for more players, right? Because every time I roll the dice, I'm either landing on my property or her property. Either I'm paying someone or it's like, okay, nothing I can do this time. Right? And my daughter at that time, she didn't trust me when it came to games, so she did not want to make a deal with me. You know, we had no, no, the only way you could get a Monopoly was if you landed on all three properties. So you're playing one-on-one, and after, it's, after five minutes, it's pretty boring. And so I'm just going through the motions. I throw the dice into the box. I move the, the, the car. 
And either I pay out or I go, okay, your turn. And then she throws the dice. And, and she could probably tell I, I wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. I was just going through the motions. But I, I could last for hours doing that. No problem. Throw a dice, move the character, collect 200 after go. I could do it. I know it's a silly example, silly illustration, but sometimes I think that's how we do life. Just give me the rules. Just tell me what I need to do. And we mindlessly go and we play. And Jesus is saying here, no, this entire Sermon on the Mount is a no to that. It's a no to that kind of life. It's a no to that kind of Christianity. It's a no to that kind of relationship with him. He's saying that's not what, what God desires. So when we get to this text, this is the last you have heard. I don't have time to go through all six you have heards, but this is the last one he's going to mention. In verse 43, look at that. He says, you have heard. All right, This is what you have heard. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So now he's going he's to talk about this. This is what you've heard. And you're thinking, well, where, what in the world? Why did we even get to this statement of, of love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. That's the simple short answer. But I think if you listen to this, what I'm going to read to you now, I'm going to read a couple verses from Psalms. If you hear this, you might be able to understand how the scribes and Pharisees might have ended up with some laws that sounds like you have to hate your neighbor. Listen to this. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Hmm. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Hmm. So it's kind of easy to imagine how you could end up at a point where, oh, maybe the law and the prophets are saying we should love our neighbors but hate our enemies. We should definitely at least hate the enemies of God. But you know what? That's not the case. We can find clear scripture passages in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament that says otherwise. Exodus 23 verse 4 says this, if you meet your enemy's ox, if you meet his ox or his donkey going astray. So you're walking around and you're like, oh, that's Bob's donkey. I hate Bob. Bob is my enemy. I will kill that donkey. No. You know what God tells the Israelites to do? He says in Exodus 23, you see it, you shall bring it back to him. You bring it back to your enemy. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. God makes it really abundantly clear. He doesn't even leave it up to interpretation. He doesn't say love your enemy and then let, let the Israelites figure out, well, I don't really have to do anything. I'm just going to think about them once in a while. I'll think positive thoughts. He breaks it down. Your enemy is in trouble. You help him. So there's clear Old Testament passages which I think describe what God wanted, but at the same time, I think there are passages where we can understand maybe how people would come up with things that sound like we should actually hate our enemy. And Jesus, remember, he said, I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets. 
part of that fulfillment was not only saying, I'm the, the guy that the Old Testament was talking about, but he's also the guy who's going to perfectly obey the law and keep the law, something which no one has been able to do, but he's also going to be the one who finally interprets it for us. This is what God is really saying. And so this is what Jesus is about to do. He's going to take these two things, which sounds like opposite statements, and he's going to combine it into one thing. Michael Wilkins has a great quote. We don't have it. Jesus takes the, complete atti- the competing attitudes, love for neighbor and hate for enemy, all right? Love for neighbor, hate for enemy. He brings them together in a way that undoubtedly stuns his audience, but is actually what God intended from the beginning. God does hate evil. But his intent is to bring reconciliation. As such, the old saying is true, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. So the first thing we have to realize is that what we're talking about right now in verse 43 of chapter 5, all right, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now here's the command in verse 44. But I say to you, all right, this is what I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what he's saying in a way maybe is this. You want to externally keep the word? Yeah, you want to go through the motions of Christianity? You want to go through the motions of this? All right, yeah, okay. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of this thing you can do, sure. That's the outside actions you can take. But you know what? That's not what God wants. What he wants for you in your heart and in your mind is bigger than that. It's greater than that. And this is what I want. I want you to love your enemies. And I want you to pray for those who persecute you. Difficult. Difficult. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't have enemies. I'm kind of like just average Orange County person. I mean, enemies? Who would be my enemies? ISIS, maybe? They're my enemies? How do I, look. Yeah, there's, at one level, you could take this to a very theoretical discussion, and you could talk about, well, how should we treat ISIS? How should we treat the guy we don't know way down the, you know, on the other side of the planet. I, I don't know. I, I have a feeling, though, that Jesus was speaking directly into the people's lives, and he was talking about the people that are surrounding them right then and there. The person that they can't stand because they always say something so negative to them at every party they go to. The person who doesn't have a clue, can't understand how difficult your life is, but they have it so great, and then they always say the most insensitive things, so you can't stand being around them. The person at work who's always trying to kill you for some reason, is always pointing out all your faults, your weaknesses, your mistakes, is trying to jump over you on that ladder. Your neighbor who's always fighting with you about the tree that you should cut down or keep or what have you. The person on the road who squeezes his car in there every morning as if you're supposed to let him into your lane when it's your lane. The person in your family who just for whatever reason has so for so many years, so many years, just not treated treated you the way you think he should treat or she should treat you. 
And to top it off, you know, something that Jesus was pretty clear about in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, if you, and he says this earlier in Matthew 5, if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, that's a blessing. In a way, I think what he's saying, and it's clear in other parts of the New Testament, is this, look, you want to be on my team, you want to be on my side, well, the things I'm going to come with to the world with, my ways, you know what, it's not easily acceptable to everyone. You're going to have people who are against what I'm teaching. You're going to have enemies. But if you're persecuted because you're trying to be on my team, you're trying to follow me, you're trying to live out the life that I'm telling you to live, that's a blessed life. So for you and I, maybe our problem is, you know what, we think sometimes it's a great thing not to have enemies, but I wonder if it's also a terrible, terrible reflection on how we live our lives. We fit in too well sometimes, don't we? The undercover Christian. The world's ways are easily confused as our ways. The world's philosophies, the world's thoughts. Materialism, yeah, that's ourism too. Seeking after pleasure, hedonism, ah, that's ourism too. And so when we live that way, when we're sliding in and fitting in and not standing out, sometimes, yeah, we're not going to have any enemies. No one's going to look at us and think, whoa. Anyways, praying for those who persecute us, and I, I think it really is in the context of righteousness sake, for righteousness sake, but look, he's going to talk about why we need to love our enemies, right? And look at verse 45. The first thing he says is, this is what our family is all about. This is what we do. He's not saying, hey, you want to be a part of my household? You want a ticket into this family? All right, you're going to have, you, you want to be my son? Yeah, this is what you have to do. What he's describing is just the way it is. Now, I remember when I was growing up, my father, what he did, and I don't know if you guys can relate to this or not, my father bought a small house. He, you know, was an immigrant, worked hard, he saved every dollar he had, and he bought a house finally, but it was too small. And so what does he do? He takes the garage, and without pulling any permits, because, right, who, which immigrant is going to actually realize you have to go to City Hall and get permits for this? He completely redoes the garage. He finishes the walls. He insulates the walls. He puts brand new carpet, and he turned our garage into a living room. It was awesome. Because right smack in the middle of our living room, he put a brand new ping pong table in there. So every day of my life, I walk into my house, and I play ping pong. I thought it was normal that you would have a garage slash living room, and you just park your cars on the street or in the driveway, and you play ping pong in your garage. That's the way we did it. I never thought twice about it. If someone asked me about it, I never thought to defend it. I just thought, oh, you guys don't do that? Ask my dad for the contact. He can do it for you guys, too. And Jesus is saying, this is the way we roll. This is how we do it in the house of God. This is how we do it in our place. This is our family's ways. 
You know, in our house, what we do is not only do we love our friends and each other, but we love our enemies as well. You want proof? Look at this. What does God do? He takes the sun and he makes it rise on the evil person as well as on the good person. You know what he does? He sends rain on the just as well as on the unjust. You know, here in Southern California, we probably think of rain as a bad thing. Rain is a great thing if you're living in, in, in farmland and you need food to live. Well, if you need food to live, you need crops to grow. If you need crops to grow, you need rain to grow your crops. And God, what does he do? Does he only provide rain for his people and say, you know what? That's my child. I will water his field. <laughs> the neighbor is not my child. He won't get a drop of water. I will give only darkness. It's going to be like perpetual winter in Alaska for the wicked ones. 18 hours a day of darkness. Or does he provide sunshine for everyone? This is called common grace, that the love of God would extend to both the wicked as well as to the righteous, to the good as well as the wicked, the good or the bad. It doesn't matter. God still loves the world enough that he sustains it. He allows it to, to keep going. And in fact, even the unjust can enjoy the beauty of Hawaii, Thailand, Philippines, whatever you want to think of as beauty, Alaska. Everyone in this world is allowed to enjoy a certain amount of God's grace. And if God treats the world like that, then who are we? Who are we to do the opposite? We can't. That's not how the family of God works. It's Jesus' point. And, you know, he makes a very compelling point as well in verses 46 to 47. Take a look at this with me. He says, you know what? Let's say you're, you're, you're only going to love those who love you. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about how great is that, all right? How great is that? You're only going to love the people who love you. All right. Hey, even the tax collectors do the same thing. Now, why would he throw tax collectors under the bus? Tax collectors were genuinely, generally hated at that time by the Jewish community. They were seen as traitors. They took the Roman side. They cheated them out of their hard-earned money, their hard-earned work, and their adding on and taking money from me, and they were not well-received at all at that time. But Jesus says, even tax collectors love those who love them. Verse 47, even the Gentiles do the same. This was not like some kind of fear of a, a, a ethnic fear. It was the idea of the Gentiles with their heathen religions. Even people who don't believe in God, even people who aren't Christian, even people who have no idea who God is, they worship hundreds of gods. They worship the God of the storms and they, they, they cut themselves and they cry out to a false God. They have idols. They do all kinds of weird things and they label it as religion. Even they love those who love them. You know, we had a puppy for like three weeks, our family. Three weeks. The only reason why it lasted just three weeks, my wife turned out to be allergic uh, to the hypoallergenic dog. thought that was really interesting. Right? She's here, so I, 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 you know, I'm smiling. I, I think it turned out great. 
But you know, this dog was hypoallergenic, but my wife was dying. Her eyes, her, nothing worked. Zyrtec, Benadryl, nothing worked. So after three weeks, it was kind of like either I had to get rid of the dog or I, have to, or I had to buy a separate home for my wife. And so it kind of, you know, easy decision, right? Get rid of the dog. But I will say this. This dog was a young puppy. Knew nothing about life, a baby. But when I came home, that puppy knew me and loved me. My daughter, I don't know where my daughter is. She barely said hi when I came home. But this puppy would act like I was the greatest living thing in the world. <laughs> right? You guys, you guys with dogs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You come over there. If I'm sitting on the couch, it jumps on that couch. Even puppies, baby dogs, love those who love them. Isn't that true? And Jesus is saying, you want to take that love you have for those who love you, and you want, you want to receive a, a medal for that? You want me to say, good job? Yes, you're, you have the love of God in you? Now, this is not in the passage, but this was something that John Piper was talking about. And he says, look, we all want to love our, neighbor, our, our enemies to a point, you know, it's a difficult teaching. But what he says, he brought up a great point. He says one of the reasons why we really struggle to do this is because we think, what, I have to love my enemy? That person's gonna get away with murder. Why should I love him? Why should I love her? That's not fair, it's not just. And his whole point was, you know what, let God be the decider of that. God doesn't give you the authority, nor does he give you the means, the power, and ability to judge anyone. Someone say amen to that. He just doesn't give it to us. I mean, you think about it, when we were younger, well, for some of us, right, this shocks me. I remember if I wanted to listen to a song on the radio more than once, I would stay up all night with a tape recorder in my hand and headphones on my ears, and I would wait till the DJ finally played that song and I would press record, and I would get so mad because why is the DJ talking so much? Just be quiet. I'm not listening to the radio to listen to you, the weather, or anything else. I want the song. And I would have never fathomed at that time that later in my life, there would be MP3s, right? Never. Smartphones and Twitter and Facebook, the internet, these are things I would have never, ever thought would come into existence when I was younger, and yet they have. Have you ever served on a jury in a criminal case? It's terrible. No wonder why everyone tries to get out of jury duty. It's not just the time that's taken out of your schedule. You know what the hard thing about being a, a juror is? You have to either decide to convict or not. And the entire case, the defense attorney is saying, this is the law, you cannot have a reasonable doubt. There has to be zero reasonable doubts. And if you have no reasonable doubts that something else could have happened, then you can convict. And do you know what kind of burden that is? We sat for days in the courtroom listening to arguments back and forth, and I kept going back and forth. Guilty, not guilty, guilty, not guilty. Yes, guilty. I don't know. 
a reasonable doubt. That is, God did not equip us to be judges. God didn't give us a mind that will see everything and know all things and understand exactly what's going through a person's heart. We cannot be bringers of justice and we cannot be bringers of just, uh, vengeance. That's not our role. What is our role? To love one another. Amen? God will not let someone get away with murder. He's a God of justice. Let God do it. And finally, in verse 48, this is probably the most shocking thing, at least for me when I was preparing this. I was like, great, how do I preach this? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> perfect, come on. I can't even play Flappy Bird. I hate that game. There's, you know, by the sixth pillar thing, I'm like freaking out and my heart's beating so fast and I'm always pressing the buttons at the wrong time. How can I be perfect in the more serious things of life? The one, the two people in this world I love the most, my wife and my daughter, I can't even be a perfect father. I can't even be a perfect husband. You know how many times we've made prayers and commitments to God and failed? You know how many times I've said, okay, this is the year, man. This is going to happen. This is, this is the year. Things turn around. And again, it didn't. You know how many times we've, we've taken that one thing in our lives and we said, well, okay, we're moving on from that. That sin no longer is going to exist. We're going to experience victory over that. And then we find ourselves a year later in the same place. What in the world? Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm going to say this, okay? There is 100%, 100%, I can say this with complete certainty, that one day you and I will be without sin. Amen? We are on this journey of perfection, and I will tell you this, we may not experience it on this side of life, but we will, and we are on that journey. But you know how that's made possible to us? How it's possible that we would be made perfect? It's possible because there was actually one person who was perfect, who never faltered, never failed, never ever made the wrong choice or decision, never said something that he would have to regret, never acted out in pure anger in a sinful way, never cursed someone out in his heart, never committed adultery in his heart. There's a person who lived like that, Jesus Christ. And God has said, look, I know I demand perfection because he's a holy God. It's not like God says, all right, love your enemies. You have to be perfect, but I know you're not perfect, so I'll just change it. I'll set up a new curb. Just love your enemies like 30% of the time, 30%. If you, if you hit that 30%, fine, I'll let you in. That's pretty good. 
God doesn't do that. He still has this uh, perfection because he's holy. He's completely holy and he's completely just. And God cannot change his character. Nor can God change his mind. He can't whiffle waffle and be like a bad parent and say, on one hand, I'll do this. And on the other hand, I won't. I'll let you in. I won't let you in. I'll punish you. I won't punish you. This is the the results of sin. No, forget sin. Let's all be happy together. God cannot be that kind of God. He can't be inconsistent like we are. So what does he do? He allows the perfection of Christ to be credited to us. Amen? He allows us to be declared perfect because one day we will be. But for now, we're on that journey. We're on that path. And a big part of that path is internal righteousness, seeking out the heart and the law of God. Amen? And a big part of that is what we're just looking at right now today. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. You will not find strength within you to do this. You will not find some corner of your heart that's so pure, so good that you can do this. You're not gonna find some magical way by reading a book to do this. The closer you are to Christ, the more connected you are to the perfect love of Christ that he had for us because guess what? He loved us when we were still his enemies. He didn't wait for us to come to the mountain, to hear his sermon, to sit at his feet, to confess all of our sins and say, I've been living life the wrong way and now I'm ready to follow you. He didn't wait for us to reach that moment. He loved us when we were still lovers. Uh, uh, We were still his enemies. It's that perfect love which now changes our life. There's an inner transformation. Amen? Church, we're called to love our enemies. I wish I could not preach on this. Because this is something that I know I don't do well. Right? But it's here. It's the way the family of Christ goes. And you're part of it. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and just take a moment. I'm just going to ask you to pray one of two things. Either today, maybe you need to just pray and say, Lord, I need to fall in love with you more and more. I'm so far away from where I need to be right now, I can't even begin to think about loving my enemies. I need to start with loving you more. You're the source of that perfect love. Remind me once again. And maybe that needs to be your prayer today. But also, maybe for some of us, there's a person in our lives that we have hated. I'm just going to ask you, to lift that person up in prayer and say, Lord, help me to love that person. Help me to love my enemy as you have loved me. Let's just make that commitment, that decision. Let's ask for that strength and let's ask for that ability. It's his desire and it's his heart. So I just want to invite you to take a moment. Let's pray together today.